I'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've been going through 2 Corinthians bit by bit on a Sunday evening while I've been here preaching and uh, we've taken a little time to go through chapter 5 uh, because there is so much there. Uh, when I say that, obviously there's a lot everywhere, but particularly um, 2 Corinthians 5 is uh, what I would call concentrated. You know, you, you, you buy this kind of squash or concentrate juice and you water it down make to make it go longer but you say to the kids so it's better for you but uh, we know don't we anyway so you it's concentrated but you water it so it goes further now this is concentrated stuff and, and, and it's my job as a preacher to try to not to water it down in the sense to make it weaker but to make it more understandable or uh, to be help to appreciate it better greater that's the kind of what I'm saying and in verse 18, which we will um, look at tonight, we looked at verse 17 last time. Uh, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And in verse 18, the apostle says, And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. I want us to look uh, briefly at reconciliation. Now, there are some big words, there's some lovely words in Scripture relating to the gospel. The gospel itself means good news. That's the literal translation, good news, the evangel. And there's lots of words, for example, like redemption and uh, um, being ransomed, adoption, justification, sanctification, glorification. There's some big words and absolutely full of, of meaning and blessing if we can understand them aright and apply them to our hearts and to our lives. And this is a great word. I love this word, reconciliation. Now, I'm going to try and go through it, and I'm going to try and use some fairly simple illustrations regarding secular or out there reconciliation and all that's involved. Now I realize as I do this I must go carefully because there may be some folk you I don't know, right? I honestly don't know. I don't know your total your back your background, I know some but not all. I don't know of your background and I don't want to be insensitive in the sense that I might touch on things and you'd say, well, he doesn't know about me, does he? Because if he knew, he wouldn't say that, and because of this, that, and the other. Right? Now, I'm trusting that I won't say anything that will be sensitive or offended to you if you've come from a certain background. All right? If it helps you, uh, it may not, but if it helps you to know that I came from a background where my parents separated and were divorced. Right? So I know a little bit about secular separation. And when I joined the civil service uh, to do with the uh, DHSS, Social Security, a part of my job was dealing with the fallout, as it were, of separation and divorce and all the rest of it. So I know a little bit about it from a personal point. I know a little bit about it from a, a legal or professional point. All right? I'm just saying that so you know that um, I do know a little bit about what I'm talking. And you might say, that's rare, but there we go. Okay? So that's where we're at. Reconciliation. Now, the first thing we have to say is the need for reconciliation. 
And then, sadly, we have to deal with another word that's not a nice word, and it's the word separation. That's never a nice word. Now, often it's in the context of a, of a man and a wife. It could be children and parents, it could be brother and sister, it could be friends, it could be neighbors, it could be all kinds of things. And the word separation uh, comes up and you think, oh. And in the proper press, uh, that, that's one of the things they have, don't they? In days gone by, you won't mention any people, but the royalty often comes to mind and big celebrities. Uh, and the front page says separation, so and so and so and so, have to be separated. You remember Prince Charles and Lady Diana. Big headline, separation. Now, I read the Daily Mail this week, all right? And I'm going to be very careful what I say, but I'm going to tell you what I saw and thought, and then I'll explain I was wrong. Sound okay? So, I opened the Daily Mail, and there was a picture of Harry and Meghan, all right? And it said, the Sussexes are separating. I thought, well, fancy that. I never heard that. I didn't know that. Wait for it. Wait for it. I said, I never heard that. And then as I read, read actually the small print, they were, the, the financial things they were doing, they were going to do separately. Oh. Now, so it's a, see, you see, the big word was separation. But when you read the small things, they're not separating. It's just that financially, for whatever reason, they're doing this and they, and they, they go in their own way financially. But that's the thing the press says, separation. And when you read it, think, hang about, you're not talking about separation, you're talking about financial arrangements or whatever. But it's not a nice word. It's a terrible word when two parents have to say to their children, I need, we need to tell you that we are separating. You may have been in that position as a receiver, or actually have done it. Um, and it's a horrendous experience. It really is. Now, the need for reconciliation is because there's been a separation. And the separation is between God and man, between God and us, between God and you and me. To once upon a time... Once in reality, the, the God was united and, uh, with his creation, with Adam, with Eve, and everything was wonderful in the garden, literally. And then man sinned. He disobeyed. He went against God. And a separation occurred. A separation from God who is holy and man who then became sinful and disobedient. And that separation runs throughout the whole Bible and almost the history of the Bible you could, you could say is summed up in the words separation and then of course following reconciliation but separation he has a people for himself he gathered to them and then sadly they're separated he describes them as his wife Israel my wife and then she goes off with other gods as if a woman would go after other men after other lovers. And that's how God describes it. It's a separation. And there's a famous verse in Isaiah where God says, your sins and your iniquities have separated between you and your God. God has been offended. God has been sinned against. Now, there used to be 
not so long ago, when a couple has decided to be divorced, that the courts would decide was their blame. And depending upon the blame element, would depend the settlement, financial and rest, would depend on the blame. And you have this uh, unsightly uh, business of uh, the man, the woman, uh, arguing in court, he's to blame, she's to blame, she's to blame, he's to blame. It'd be the blame game. And the government, in its great wisdom, or not, decided that this was too complicated, too costly. It's all about money, isn't it? Uh, too costly. And so there would be what they call a no-blame divorce. Just get it over quickly. If you've decided you can't live together anymore, just get it over. Just sort it out. So it won't cost us anymore. And it means that no one is blamed. It's not his fault, it's not her fault. Now, I don't know the statistics, but I think it would be very rare for there to be always both to blame. Normally, there's one factor, one big factor. Often, it's somebody else is involved, either one side or the other side, as it was with my mother. Off she went. There's a blame. Now, in this particular separation, it's one-sided. All the blame is on us. God never did anything whereby we could say, well, you're not a loving husband. I'm using the word uh, in voidic commas. You're not a loving husband. We can't cope with you anymore. You're too demanding. You're too this. You're too that. I want out. You can push off. All that God was as a husband, we're talking about spiritually now, I'm sure that you understand that. All that God was, was pure and perfect. Did God make demands? Yes, he did. He said, I will be all this to you, but you must obey. You must walk in my ways. You must keep my laws. And you're not to go after other gods. Why would you want to? Again, I go carefully. Why would a woman want to go after another man? Why would a man want to go after another woman? Well, if you interview them, as I did, they would give reasons. I won't bore you with the thing you know that well enough, alas. He will say, well, she was this, that, and the other, or she wasn't this, that, and the other. She will say, well, he was this, and that. And you know the thing. Now, as far as God is concerned and his people, he's in everything that he should do and be to them. But they are wanderlust. They want to go their own way and do their own thing. How tragic is that? How tragic it is. They know that God's way is best. It shows, doesn't it not, the depravity of our heart. It shows that, that the sinfulness of sin. We know what is right and good and best, and yet we don't want to do that. We want to go our own way and do our own thing. You see, essentially, sin is idolatry. I worship me because I'm the best. And I worship me and I will do what I want to do. And why should God dictate to me and tell me I should do this? I should not do that. I want to do as I want. It's idolatry. It's worship of self. 
and it's expressed in so many ways. And one is, off to go, I'll do what I want without whom I, I want. So here's the need. The great need is God is separated from us and we are entirely to blame. It's our responsibility. It's our sin. Well, enough of that, and it's not very present, but we could go on and on and on and on. So the next thing is the, in, the initiative. Who takes the initiative in the reconciliation? Wow. Interesting, isn't it? It depends who's been offended. It depends who feels the need most, some might say. He's a man, he's a woman, they've separated, and he might pursue her. He'll say, all right, I admit I was wrong, I did things wrong, please come home, please come back. She might pursue him. She might say, all right, I wasn't a perfect wife, but, you know, um, please come back, I want you to come home. She might take initiative, he might take initiative. It depends on who they are, what they are, how it's worked out without the other one. All that kind of thing is involved. It's not often that the one who has offended, been offended, takes initiative. It does happen, but not always. My dad tried unsuccessfully. Uh, it can happen, but it's not often. That the one who's been offended will go after the one who's offended and say, you've done this, but I want you to come back. You've done this, but I'm prepared to forgive you. I want you to come back. That's rare. It does happen, but it's rare. Strangely, amazingly, the gospel of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is about a God who has been offended. I, I hesitate to use, use the word hurt, but let's use it in a spiritual sense, right? I was displeased, offended, greatly offended. Yet he is the one who makes the overtures to these folk who have deliberately wandered off and deliberately gone away from him and deliberately sinned. It is he who seeks them to return. He seeks reconciliation with them. Now that's amazing. You think about that. The essence of this morning's message was God doesn't need us. Right? God can look after himself and can do what he wants. That was the essence of it. There's another side. I'm not going to go through it all again. But the point I want to make here is God doesn't need us to be complete in himself. God, was ne God never said back in eternity where was the Father and the Son and the Spirit. God said, you know, I'm a bit lonely up here on my own. Be nice to others. I know, I, I have a kind of plan where I, well, I'll create and, and I'll do this and that and I'll have a great number and oh, it'll be wonderful. After all this. Right? God didn't create the world and then have this great plan of salvation to satisfy a need in himself. You've got to see that. I know this is deep stuff, but be, bear with me, right? God doesn't need us to satisfy himself. interviewed men and women and uh, they wanted to go back or they wanted their partner to come back to them and the, the problem was there was a need in them there were all kinds of needs I won't go through all that you can, you can know what I'm, I'm talking about they, there was a need they felt 
not complete without the wife, without the father, without the husband. There was a need there. God didn't need us. He didn't say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got no people now. They're all bonded off. What am I going to do? I need them. God doesn't need you. But amazingly, God wants you. Isn't it amazing? Why would you want a wanderer? Why would you want this wretch? Why would you want this, this, I have to be careful what I say, person. Why would you want them? Because you don't know any of these people, and I, I, and I won't mention any names anyway, but uh, there was a family up in the valleys, all right? And I dealt with her on a professional basis. Um, she came into the office because she was separated from her husband. And I didn't know who she was. It was a common name, Williams. Right? Thousands of them. And I didn't know her. But when I learned of the address to which she had gone, having left him up in the valleys, which was my home village, and I knew the address, and I remember her being a little girl. Wow. I, I hesitated to say this. Forgive me, ladies. But she was a poor, poor thing. She was a bit of a wretch. She was a little girl lover. You know the type. There we are. Anyway, she grew up, married this bloke, had about six children. Um, and they were all a bit strange. Love them. They came to Sunday school. He used to have a, sorry about this, a runny nose. You know kids who've got runny noses, right? Some of you. This is a real world, right? Oh, Colin, don't talk about runny noses. If you live in a real world, you know what runny nose is about. Right, let's move on. I had bunny noses. And he used to say, Uncle Colin, I'm a poorly boy. I felt so sorry for him. He, he wasn't quite 16 ounces. And anyway, back. so I, was, I knew the family. I knew all about it. And she'd come and she'd have a black eye and she'd separate it. They were actually at the end of him. Three months down the line, she'd come and say, I'm back with Mr. Williams. Why? Why on earth would you go back to that bleep, 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 bleep slob? He beats you. He does terrible things. Well, I love him. Oh, I love him. I know some of you are smiling. Yeah, well, I love him. Now I'm trying to be a professional, right? I'm a professional. I must get involved. I felt like saying, how on earth could you love that slob? But I couldn't say that because it's none of my business. I think it, but I don't say it. He said, she said, when he's sober, he's wonderful. He's kind and loving. But when he's had a couple of pints, as often he did on a Friday night, and a Saturday and Sunday sometimes. Now, it's amazing. But that's not as amazing as this holy, righteous, pure God wanting the likes of you and the likes of me to come back to him. That's something beyond even the Williamses. And knowing what we'd be like when we came back. Oh, if you have me back, here's Mr. Williams. Huh? If you have me back, I'll be wonderful. I'll, I'll stop drinking, well, almost. And I'll be kind, and I'll be this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Didn't last. 
Six months on, nine months on, another black eye, another owner, owner, owner. Now, God knew that when he would save you and me, there wouldn't be perfection from day one. God knew that you would fall along the way. God knew you would fail along the way. God knew you, God knew you would make mistakes. Hands up those who have, since they were saved, since they were covered, they've never done anything wrong. I don't see any hands up. And this one is going down. Prone, this is the hymn writer, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it from thy courts above. And this is what the Apostle Paul talks about this, doesn't he? What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. It's the sin that's still in there. It's the remains of sin that's still there. And it's a battle every day. But God knew about that. He wasn't ignorant. He knew what would happen after he had reconciled. He knew. He knew. I do it still sin. And yet he was prepared to save us nevertheless and keep us nevertheless and begin to do deep work of cleansing and renewing and that we might become new creations in Christ. Okay, that's enough about God taking the initiative. And then finally, what are the means that God uses to effect reconciliation? Well... The answer is simple, and you know it, and it's there in the text. For all things of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. He is the one through whom and by whom and because of whom God reconciles sinners. Now, back to our little illustration. Sometimes there are two parties that are separated. I won't stay with the man and wife for the moment. And they're separated, and uh, there's a problem, obviously, and uh, they're not good at talking, perhaps. They could never have discussions. Perhaps that was the breakup of the marriage. They just couldn't talk to one another or wouldn't. Um, and so there used to be, I don't know if there still is, but there used to be what was called a marriage counsellor. And this counsellor, male, female, uh, with some understanding, we would hope, some experience where you would hope uh, will come and mediate between the two parties. She would say, right, the man, right, what's your story? Say the woman, what's your story? And then they would discuss it. And she would seek to, to, to work it out so that um, they might have a common ground and eventually be reconciled. I tell you what, it must have been a tough job, or if they still do it, a tough job. Not just with husband and wife, parents and children. How difficult that is with children who just don't want to be controlled, don't want to be disciplined, don't want to be told when to get up and when to go to bed and, and all the problems there are with children. Increasingly these days, apparently. Increasingly. Now, I'm going to take you to the book of Job. You say, well, that's very interesting. Why interesting? Why are you going there? Well, because Job had a problem. Now, I'm not going to go through the book of Job, right? I don't think I could if I wanted to. I'm not going to. But you know Job had a problem. You know that it wasn't Job's fault 
she had a problem. Well, I say that, in a sense, it was Job's fault because he was a godly man. You say, I don't understand what you're talking about. Well, if you read the early chapters of Job, you will find that God has this kind of get-together in heaven and, and Satan comes along and he's in on, the, in on the conversation. Don't ask me how or why, whatever. And he says, and obviously God is talking about perhaps his people, perhaps godly men and godly women. And, um, and Satan says, there's nobody's really God. There's nobody really pure and holy. And they, they don't care about you. Just where they can get out of you. You look after them and you bless them and they'll do what you ask. You do what they, you, they'll do what you ask. That's the kind of... And, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? I tell you what, every time I think of that, I thought, wow. I wonder if something similar happened tonight. God would say to Satan, have you considered my servant Colin? I hope not. I wonder if he mentioned your name. Have you considered him? Have you considered her? You know, see, God is setting this up. He's setting Job up. Because he knows Job is a godly an honourable man. And he knows that he will go through it. Of course, God will enable him to go through it, but he knows that God, Job will go through it. And so Satan says, okay, let me have a go at him. Okay, I'll give you permission to have a go at him, his circumstances, his family, but don't touch him personally. Don't touch him. And so all kinds of things happen. We won't go through it all. You'll know it, most of it. At the end of it, Job is severely tested and tried and tempted. And you think a normal bloke say, I've had enough. God, what are you doing to me? How dare you? I serve you. I work for you. I love you. How dare you treat me like this? You're dreadful. You're a dreadful God. But through it all, Job said, the Lord has given Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow, that's some faith. I'm a long way off that. I confess I'm a long way off that. Imagine that. And then, so, Satan goes back, and I won't do the one nil business again, but um, you know what I mean. Right? She goes back and says, yeah, yeah. Ah, well, you know. All right, I'll give you in this once. But let me touch his body. Let me, let me afflict him with something. Let me, let me do something to him. Then he'll curse you and all this. So God says, okay, but don't kill him. Don't cause him to die. And so poor old Job, because I think of all these boils. Oh, it's that horrendous state. And poor old Mrs. Job, you know, she's seen her husband suffering. She said, you know, it would be better if you died. Curse God and die because you're in such pain. And he told her off and said, shall we receive good and not bad from the Lord? And he worshipped the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. What a man. But he still doesn't understand what's going on. And then throughout the rest of the book, you have this discussion between him and his so-called mates, you know. And they're not good mates. So they, they start, you know, I'm very sorry for your trouble. And, all that. and then they say, well, it's really your fault, isn't it? Yes, I feel like that, Zach. All right. It's your fault. You're obviously a secret sinner. That's what you are. 
You're a secret sinner, and you've got all these big sins, and God has seen them, and you've been punished. And Job said, I don't think so. I don't think so. Anyway, when we get to chapter 9, all right, let me read you some verses from chapter 9 of Job. Don't, you know, you turn to my, I'll read them to you. Then Job answered and said, I know it is of a truth, but how could a man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one in of a thousand. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has opened himself against him and prospered. Who removes the mountains that they know not? Which, who overturned them in his anger? Who shakes the earth out of her palace and her pillars of tremble? Who commands the sun and it rises not and seals up the stars? Who alone spreads out the heavens and treads out the, the waves of the sea? And on and on he goes about the greatness of God. And then he comes and he says, uh, If I be wicked, then why do I live in vain? If I wash myself with snow, uh, will my hands be made so clean? For there's not, he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him. And we should come together in judgment. And here's the verse. Neither is any day's man between us that he might lay his hand upon us both. He said, that's what I need. I need a day's man. That's an old-fashioned word, and it means arbitrator. Some modern versions would say mediator or umpire even, or somebody, a go-between. What Job says he needs, and he was right, he needed somebody to take him and somebody to take God and to bring them together. He needs a mediator. He needs an umpire. He needs somebody who knows Job intimately, inside out, upside down, and who knows God. It's a big problem being an umpire or a referee. Now, it's not for me to mention a certain great, wonderful um, competition that's going on at the moment, all right? Far be it from me, all right, to say it's the best competition in the world, and uh, far from be it from me to say anything about a oval ball, which is much better than these stupid little round ones. Now, I'm not going to say anything, right? Suffice it to say, if you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> you know, if you don't ask me later. But the big problem at the moment is the referees. They're having terrible stick, and I feel for them. There's so many new laws and so many new rules, and if you hit somebody here, it's all right. If you hit somebody there, it's not all right, and all this kind of thing. Back in my day, back in my day, you get smacked and you get and blood was everywhere. You just got up, wipe it off, and off you go. And this nonsense stuff, get on with it. Anyway, being a referee is a big job. You've got to know the rules. You've got, to have, uh, you've got to have a sympathetic attitude to the players. Most of the best referees were players themselves. And you've got to know what the law says and what the law requires and trying to bring them together. It's a huge job. It's a difficult job. That's why these, these football referees are um, you know, worth millions. They ought to get much more than all the players put together. But that's my opinion. Now, so what we need is somebody who can sympathize with us, can empathize with us to a degree, 
and who, who can come alongside us and understand our position and all the rest of it, but also somebody who's acceptable to God, who knows God, who knows God's rules and regulations and his justice and his justice. We want someone who knows God. So who is there that knows God? Who is there that knows us? And who is perfect in himself? Where would you find such a person? His name is Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. And we have these descriptions of him, don't we? There's one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. He is likened to the high priest who offered sins on behalf of the people uh, before God, who knew the people, who knew, uh, knew God. I often quote, and, and I will carry on quoting until the Lord shuts me up, um, Hebrews 4. The writer's talking about the Lord, about the high priest, and about the Lord Jesus Christ being this great high priest. And this is what he says. Seeing then... <laughs> And we have a great high priest. He's talking about the Lord Jesus. And it's passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. So this is who he is. He's a great high priest. He's died and risen again. He's now in heaven. Right? There he is. Let's hold fast our profession. And I keep saying this because it's lovely and this is what the Bible says. He puts what he is in a negative way. Listen. For we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Have you got that? We don't have one who can't. Means simply, we do have one who can. Have you got that? Yes. You may nod or smile or wave your hand or jump up and down. I don't give a damn. Now, that's a negative way of putting a positive truth, and it's typical of the Hebrews. They'll put two negatives together to make a positive. We, he could have said, we have a high priest who can. He could have said that. It'll amount to the same thing in the end. But he puts it negatively because he wants to emphasize it. We don't have one who can't. Yes, but we do have one who can. Praise the Lord. And you know why we have one who can? Because he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Why was Jesus born as a baby? We looked at this one Christmas, I think it was the last one. Why can't he just arrive as a man? Come, zoom into the world, 30 years of age, do a bit of preaching, teaching, healing, and then go to the cross and all the rest of it. In the purposes of God, he was born. Now, he was born of a woman, but not of a man and a woman. His conception was supernatural, but he was born as a baby. Everything else was normal and natural. He was born as a baby. He was raised as a toddler. He grew up as a teenager. He went through his 20s into his 30s. He's a man who lived. He was a manual worker. I was going to say he rolled up his sleeves. If he had them, he made up with a short sleeve. I don't know. He worked in the carpenter shop. He worked building fences and doors and all kinds of things in the farms and in the houses and up probably on the roof and, and all that they did, all that carpenters did, and it was a bigger word than carpentry, probably a bit of masonry, a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of odd job. He did all that. And he was tempted all, all along, particularly as recorded in the Gospels by the enemy. 
You can never go to Jesus and say, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like living in this world. You don't know what it's like living in a family. You know what it's like working hard for your living. You don't know what it's like looking after a widowed mother, looking after siblings. You don't know what it's like. Ah, oh, but I do. I do. I've been there, done that. The magnificence of the Lord Jesus as a mediator. He qualifies. What about God's side? Well, he has come from God. He's come from the Father's side. No one knows the Father but the Son. No one knows the Son but the Father. He's known the Father for eternity. He knows the Father intimately, eternally, absolutely. He is fitting to represent me, the sinner. He's fitting to represent God, the Holy One. He can bring us together, and he does. And he affects salvation in himself. Now the way he does that, and I feel you have to wait till next time, only because it'll take too long and I don't want to shorten it. Suffice it to say that Jesus effected reconciliation, not in some nice posh solicitor's chambers, big posh leather seats, you know. He affected exhalation at a place called Golgotha on a cross of torture and blood and gore and the wrath of God being poured forth on him and he receives it and suffers it that he might reconcile all those who are due to it as they trust in him they are reconciled to his father Time and eternity. Hallelujah. Let's stop. Father, we thank you for this ministry of reconciliation. We realize we only just scraped the surface. There's so much more that we need to know. And God willing, we'll know next time we meet. But meanwhile, we just want to rejoice. The God whom we have offended deeply, deeply, our sin and disobedience and ungodliness and righteousness. This is the God who wants us back, who wants us to come home, who wants us to be back in fellowship with himself. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. It's no wonder the scripture says there is none other game given under heaven whereby we must be saved. The Lord Jesus. It's no wonder he says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. Oh, amen. Our final hymn is 473. Main gospel hymn. Another one by Mr. Hyam. And it's a hymn to challenge those who as yet are not reconciled to God that they might use this as a little prayer to come. Have you heard the voice of Jesus softly pleading with your heart? Have you felt his presence glorious as he calls your soul apart? With a love so true and loyal, love divine that ever flows, 
from a saviour, righteous, royal, and a cross that mercy flows. Number four, seven, three. of the gospel. An offended God pleads with those who offended him to come back, to come home. I've done all that is necessary. I've given my son for your sin. The debt has been cleared. 
your sins will be forgiven and shall know my blessing for time and eternity. Come home. Oh, Father, work in some dear heart here tonight if necessary and bring them home. Bring them home with yourself. And now may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest and remain upon God's people here until he shall come and then forevermore. Amen. Amen. Amen.